So as we've been practicing the invitation this evening, what I'd like to do is to um, kind of pull out some threads or start to look at some things that we may have noticed or uh, we might notice now with reflection about our experience. Because to some degree, what we've been doing essentially is we've been paying attention to, to the unfolding of our experience in a way that we, we don't do in our um, day-to-day life a lot. And one thing that we can begin to see as we, we do what we're doing here, as we take time to simplify the conditions, to be in silence, to really turn the attention forward um, inwards, one of the things that we see um, is that a lot of the time, most of the time, we view life in certain ways. Yeah, and when I say life, I include um, ourselves and external phenomena as well. And some of the ways that we view life is um, we view life, we view experience, we view phenomena as solid, um, as separate, as permanent. And I'll, I'll say more about this. And this includes both external phenomena, so um, things like um, other people or objects or events that we we tend to to just, without noticing, to solidify, give some permanent solid um, entity to. Um, And it also includes internal phenomena in our own experience, like our, our moods, yeah, mind states, our physical sensations, our emotions. And so this is something that, that we do all the time um, as human beings, and of course it, it fulfills functions in our lives. But it's, it's really interesting, and it's really worthwhile, and hopefully I'll convince you of that this evening, to, to really start to look at that and to see what happens in that, what it leads to, and what other possibilities can be for us in relating to to our experience. So I want to give an example of this. Uh, You may have noticed in the short 24 hours, I'm pretty big on examples. So um, this is one example of how we do this and what it can lead to. It's a very mild one. So I just got back um, from a a two-week visit to my family and friends in Israel and Palestine. And um, when I got there, which was about two and a half weeks ago, um, I was expecting, it was June, I haven't been there in June for a long time, I was really expecting it to be unbearably hot. Um, and I kind of came out of the, of the airport terminal, and it was actually fine. You know, and, and one of the first things I asked my mother, who'd come to pick me up, was, what's the temperature? And she said, oh, it was 29 degrees. You know, that we, we're having a, a good summer so far. It's that great. And while I was there, and the temperature was quite mild for uh, an Israeli summer, uh, over here, you were having a really, really bad heat wave. <laughs> and so I'd had these conversations with my partner, and he'd be telling me, you know, that it was really hot here. I'd be like, you know, can't be as hot as Israel, you know, no way. And, and we kept having this, you know, conversation almost every time we spoke, until finally um, he told me what the temperature actually was here, and it was 33 degrees, you know, so he won in the, in the, in the race. <laughs> What's interesting about it is these, these ways that we look at something. So in my mind, Israel is always hotter than England. Yeah, It's a fact, and it's indisputable. And it doesn't matter how many times my partner, who's been to Israel plenty of times, tells me it's actually hotter here. I hold on to my view. Yeah. So this is, it's a very kind of, very simple, mild example of where the view is, we take it to be fact, we take it to be solid and unchanging, 
this is the way things are. You know, Israel is always going to be hotter than England. Period. You know. And when we begin to explore our experience, we see that this kind of thing happens a lot. You know, with our relationship to ourselves. You know, I am like this. You know, I'm always like this. And we kind of open up a little and we see what actually, you know, what was I like? Whatever it is that's, that's going on right now, you know, I'm very distracted or restless, I'm always like this. You know, was I an hour ago or two hours ago or this morning when I woke up? You know, retreat's always hard for me. That's another one that some of us have. And is that true? You know, is that true? And that's something to look at. And also, what does that actually create when we... It's not the view that's the issue, it's when we hold on to it. Yeah, when we really believe it, that that is always true, that's always the way things are. So, what we begin to see when we look and we practice, what we begin to see is that um, often when we look at things from that view of solidity and permanence, that actually um, leads to some degree of suffering. Yeah, some degree of suffering. It's not necessarily the most useful way. And if I go back to that example of these conversations with, with Nathan, my partner, like, you know, there's always that edge of the argument underneath, which is unpleasant. Yeah, and of course, it's not a big drama. It's a very mild example. But that is a, that is a type of suffering. Just there, in the dynamic, which is unnecessary. You know, we're talking to each other because, you know, we miss each other and we love each other and then and yet there that's what's happening through talking about the weather and is that really really what we want you know for all of us so dharma teachings are very much about um, supporting us encouraging us showing us ways to actually reduce suffering not increase it in our lives and they point to ways that we can look at experience, that we can look at life. Ways that actually reduce, dissolve a lot of this unnecessary suffering that we build up through our conditioning, through our patterns and our habits and our beliefs. And these ways of looking that reduce suffering are, are rooted in wisdom. Yeah, they're rooted in wisdom. And when I say wisdom, it always is wisdom and compassion together. Yeah. One doesn't, in my experience, one does not exist without the other. So they're rooted in wisdom and that understanding that actually things may seem solid, may seem permanent, but they are not. They are not, including our own views. And actually when we look at experience, our own personal experience and life in all its manifestations, what we see is that things are changing. They're in movement and flux. And they're also not solid, they're actually interdependent. They're actually interdependent. And they depend on causes and conditions which themselves are in constant change. And this isn't, um, in, in one way what I'm saying is um, something that we can see very clearly some of the time. And on the other, it's something that takes a lot of um, looking and exploring to really um, absorb, to really embody. So it's kind of a both. And so, again, we can see this when we look at the world, you know, we see the, the seasons changing, you know, we see the, the clouds and the sun moving through, we see the night and the day, you know, we see that change is there, yeah. Where is that moment when night changes into day, you know, is it just one suddenly becomes the other? You know, we know, we know that's not exactly the way things work. And we also see it again when we look at our experience, when we see the 
conditioned nature of our moods and our mind states or physical sensations. You know, one moment we'll be um, sitting in the hall and there'll be a lot of restlessness or intense pain somewhere in the body and the bell will ring and we haven't even moved. But it changes. You know, have you had moments like that? <laughs> yes, the bell rang and suddenly the restlessness is gone or reduced. So it doesn't exist in itself. It's conditioned. It's in relationship to other things. So seeing the, the fluidity in life and the conditioned nature of things, that they're not one-dimensional, can be really, um, really, really helpful for us. Really, really helpful for us. There's lots of examples here over the day, and someone was sharing something that I'm, I'm sure a lot of us um, have experienced. You know, there can be moments when you know we feel um, quite held and contained by the form, and you know we're feeling quite at ease with being here and with the retreat. And then the thought will arise: Oh, there's still four days to go. You know, just that thought will arise and the experience changes and it's like, how am I going to survive? You know, and it's real. You know, it feels very real. It's just, what's changed? Nothing's changed. Just a thought has arisen. But suddenly our whole perspective shifts. And we're seeing our experience through the lens of that thought. I've got to survive for four more days. Or whatever it is. That, that, that manifests. So, one way of, of looking at this is um, through something that I mentioned my friend Rob, he calls it ways of looking, which is, uh, for me, a very, very useful way to, to um, explore our experience. And so, what lens am I looking, you know, ways of looking, almost like um, someone told me recently that when she teaches this, she um, actually brings a whole bunch of glasses with her and she puts them on. Um, and that really, you know, that's actually what we do to a great degree. So what lens am I looking at, looking through right now when I'm looking at my experience? You know, I'm having body pain. And so I'm looking, you know, the lens that I'm looking at can be, I need to bear this until the bell rings. And then when the bell rings, it shifts. It's as if I've taken that off. And that shifts the experience of the pain. So how we view things, what we, what we actually perceive... This is, this is where it gets so interesting and so powerful. What we actually perceive is dependent on the lens that we're looking through, the way of looking that is operating, that is at play at that point. And so I'm going to read from my book again. Example. So this is um, an experience that um, happened in, in, their, in their church in the, in the mid-80s in L.A. And um, there was an act that was passed um, by the immigration authorities in the U.S. And as a result of that, a lot of people um, were sleeping on the streets and this church declared itself a sanctuary. So it was a place where people could come and sleep at night safely. And so the, the men were sleeping in the church and the women and children were sleeping in the convent, which is just next door. And here's Gregory Boyle speaking to us and he says, Once the homeless began to sleep in the church at night, there was always the faintest evidence that they had that they'd been there. Come Sunday morning, 
we'd foo-foo the place as best we could. So by evidence, he means there was just a mild smell in, in the church. And he describes how they would really do everything they could to try and, and make it um, smell neutral again. Um, but it didn't work. So as try as we might, the smell remained. And the grumbling amongst the congregation set in. The people were not happy <laughs> to come to Mass and for there to be a smell in, in the church. And he says, the smell was never overwhelming, just undeniably there. So we decided to um, address discontent in the, in, the, um, in the community directly. So one Sunday, as he was giving the, the sermon, or <coughs> I don't know much about Catholic service, so... Um, he, he decided to actually um, engage. And so he began, he began the, the sermon with a question. And he asked the congregation, what does the church smell like? People were mortified. <laughs> Eye contact ceased. Everyone started being busy doing something, not looking. Come on now. I asked again, what's the church smell like? And then one old man, who never really cared what people thought, called out, it smells like feet. It smells like feet. So Gregory Boyle replies, excellent, but why does it smell like feet? And someone else responds, because many homeless men slept here last night. And he asks, well, why do we let that happen here? Why do we let that happen here? And another person responds and says, because it's what we've committed to do. And he asks again, but why would anyone commit to do that? You know, why would anyone commit to let a hundred homeless men sleep in their church. And the response comes back, because it's what Jesus would do. And so he asks them again, well then, what does the church smell like now? A man stands up and bellows. It smells like commitment. The place cheers. A woman waves her arms wildly and calls out. It smells like roses. The packed church roars with laughter and a newfound kinship that embraced someone else's odour as their own. The smell in the church hadn't changed, only how the folks saw it. Only how the folks saw it. So I feel like this, this story really gives us such a direct sense of that possibility and you know, of how we look at something, whether it's pleasant or unpleasant, how we look at it actually shapes how we perceive it, whether it's a problem or a blessing in this case. So that really has so much power, power of our mind. So these ways of looking, these lenses that we look through, you know, they're conditioned and they're changeable. Yeah? We have the capacity to, to change how we look through what we look. And the more we understand this, the less limited we are, yeah, the less hooked we are by our reactivity and our patterns and our stories. And the more we understand this, the more we can put our energy into cultivating ways of looking that actually increase our well-being and reduce suffering for ourselves and others. And so... 
the theme of this retreat, the Brahma Viharas, the immeasurables, we can also relate to them as ways of looking that we're cultivating. Yeah. Glasses that we can, you know, put on, if we like. Attitudes that we are cultivating, that we're um, developing in us, and that we can apply, that we can apply to our experience. And the more we practice, the more immediate and accessible they become. This is the beauty about, of practice. So just like in this story that I read, you know, they, these attitudes, when we shift from, I don't like the smell, to, in their case, this is what Jesus would do, this is compassion, this is kinship. From something unpleasant, it becomes a celebration. So I'm going to focus in, in the talk in exploring the Brahma Viharas as ways of looking. I'm going to focus on metta, um, just to keep it simple. But whatever I say about metta applies to, to all of the four um, that we'll be exploring over the days, and I just want to say that. And I also want to really highlight how all four qualities work together. They're actually, again, not separate from each other. You know, it's, we, we separate them into four because that can be easier for us. But they're actually all working together, all interconnected to each other. And again, I want to give an example of that, a kind of real-life example of how they actually are always present with each other. When there's one, the others will also be there. It may just be that one is, is more prominent or that we um, ourselves emphasize one in our practice. So, let's see how far we get with this talk. <laughs> just noticing the time. So, another example. So this is um, something um, that, that happened to me just uh, last week. No, this week, just a few days ago, um, when I was still in Israel. And um, when I'd arrived in Israel, I, I'd I found out that um, a very close friend of mine, a practitioner, and very close friend, a peace activist from Palestine, um, his wife was very ill and she was in the process, she is in the process of diagnosis at the moment and uh, we had, he had with some help, he would really manage, he'd managed to um, make some appointments for her to, to come and have some tests done in Israel uh, which isn't easy or straightforward to do. And this was the day before she was coming in for the, for the tests. Um, she had gotten, in order to come to Israel, she has to get a permit um, from the military to, to cross in. And she had gotten the permit, but neither her husband or her sister, who'd both applied for, for the permit so that they could accompany her, neither of them had. So she had a permit to go alone. Very, very ill um, woman, friend. And so I was trying to see if I could, um, I could change that, if I could actually get a permit for, for my friend um, Issa to, to go with his wife. And I phoned um, someone who is, is quite high up in the um, permit-issuing offices of the Israeli army and who's helped, um, helped in the past and so I was, I, I, there was no guarantee. So this is where equanimity is the beginning of the story. I knew that I was phoning um, to see if something could be done. But the container, the ground for what I was doing was equanimity. It was actually just a sense of centeredness, of care and centeredness and openness, of doing the best I could. 
but knowing that it was a complete unknown. And then metta came in as a basic attitude of friendliness and kindness, knowing that this would be difficult for me, knowing the difficulty that my friends, my Palestinian friends, were under, were going through. And also um, having that attitude towards the person I was about to speak to on the phone. And very quickly, um, the metta, when it meets suffering, it becomes compassion. Yeah, yeah, that's what it transforms to. So also having that. And so when we, when we spoke on the phone, and I told him the situation, um, he told me that the, the rules had been changed, and there was now a lot more um, regulations in place which meant that he wasn't even allowed to talk to me unless I was a legal representative of this family. And that all we could do was that we could go back to the regular channels, which take two weeks to process, to try and get the permit, which had already failed. And I could hear in his voice the same qualities that I'd heard previous times when he was able to help. I could hear his own pain at not being able to do anything. I could hear his own uh, resonance with someone else's distress. And I don't know this person at all. I've only spoken to him on the phone a few times. I could hear that. And I could, in that moment also, there was Mudita you know, which we call appreciative joy. Um, For me, it's not, in this case, some kind of of happiness, um, you know, at at the situation, but it is a deep appreciation of this human quality that is in this person in front of me. You know, someone that cares within a system that is really trying to squash that, that care in individuals someone that cares and is able to voice that even when he is unable to do anything he's not able to act so there was that appreciation of of the Medita and then the resting back into the equanimity again which is then the container that holds this fullness of human experience so they're all working together they're all working together to make, and I'm speaking very calmly now, yeah, to make a situation which is unbearable. Yeah, unbearable. You know, systematic cruelty that does not see the right of an ill person to have support. None of them are a danger. But the system doesn't see the individual, the person, and their fundamental needs. It sees through a different lens. But it's possible for us to be there, present, with the support of the practice, for me at least, with the support of these attitudes, without the heart closing, with a clear sense of injustice and what needs to be done. But without shutting down. And all these qualities come together to support that. And why why is that important? Why is that important? It's important because it leaves our life force, it leaves our energies available to do the work that needs to be done instead of being consumed in the anger, which is justified. Yeah. Instead of being consumed in the anger or in the overwhelm. 
when the, the Brahma Viharas, when they come together in that way, when we apply them, and sometimes in a situation like this, it's a very conscious thing to do, to bring them to the fore and to feel the support. We apply them. Then this kind of situation does not drain our resources, but it leaves us able to continue to, to act and to address in the best possible way the situation that we're faced with. So these practices and meta-practice um, we'll concentrate on today, it really, um, it's a mind training. We're training the mind, we're training the heart to stay open and receptive to what arises in life. We train the heart and the mind to stay open, to stay receptive. Sometimes we use the word welcoming, to welcome, <coughs> not to close down, not to push away. And as we practice metta, we, we start to see more and more of the things that I've been speaking about. You know, we see how the... the the state of our mind, the state of our heart is conditioned, is affected by, by, th- by other conditions that are around. It's not independent. So, you know, if, if it's the meditation just after lunch and the body's busy digesting and there's heaviness and tiredness, that's going to affect the state of the citta. For some of us at least, very likely. Or if it's a hot day, it might affect the state of the chitta. Or if I've just come from an incredibly busy, intense period in my life, it will affect the state of the chitta, the heart-mind. Sorry, I didn't say. Chitta is um, the Pali word for heart-mind. They're, they're one in, in this, in this um, Sense. There's also a separate word for mind, but when we speak about mind states and mood states, they're, they're heart-mind states. So we get a direct experience of how variable we are, actually, and how dependent on conditions we are. For example we see that when the flow of metta is strong, for whatever reason, in the practice, then if we're practicing metta for another, we may feel feel more close to the other. The other feels more close to us. Or if we're practicing metta to ourselves, if the flow of metta is strong, then we'll feel um, perhaps more open to receive it. Yeah? It'd be less problematic or we can even possibly feel more worthy of receiving it, yeah, if the flow of metta is strong. So it affects, the, the, the strength of the metta will affect our view of ourselves or a view of the other. When the metta is less strong, it's most likely that there'll be less acceptance of ourselves as we are, or less of a sense of worthiness. And if we're doing metta for another, they will feel more distant, not as close. And if we don't look carefully, what we habitually will do is, if the metta is, is, is strong, we'll feel like, oh, I'm doing this right. Yeah. If the metta is less strong, we'll feel, oh, I'm doing something wrong. Yeah, we'll take on that sense of, you know, I am doing it well or not well. Instead of just looking at the relationship and seeing the conditioned nature. Does that make sense to people? It's a little bit complicated. Doesn't make sense. Yeah, not to everyone. Yeah, so I'll just just repeat it. So something is going on in our meditation practice. For example, I'll just use the same example to keep it simple. We feel that flow of metta is flowing quite well, it's quite strong. And then, a- 
as that is happening, we might also notice that there's more openness within us to receive metta. You know, so there's less of a closeness, there's less of a sense of, um, no, not, not really, not me, you know, I'm not worthy of metta. So those two things will come together because they are in relationship to each other. But what we'll often do is, we'll, we'll, what we'll, we'll take from that is, um, you know, the metta's going well because I'm doing the practice well, or the metta's not going well because I'm not doing the practice well. Yeah, so identifying around it, rather than seeing that this is a flow that's conditioned by different things. So if the mind is quiet, because I slept well, and this kind of weather suits me, and the guidance really meets where I am, whatever, all these conditions are coming in, and the flow of the metta is strong. You know, but I don't see that, so when I open to that, does that make more sense now? bit more clear? Still not. Come back to me if it's not. And maybe, maybe I'll clarify it as I go along. So what the encouragement is, is to look at the conditions that are at play instead of just um, labeling it as I'm doing well, I'm doing not well. Yeah, to look at the conditions that are at play and to explore you know, what is affecting that perception of myself? What is affecting that perception of the other? So allowing ourselves to, to explore, to question, to play with perception, because perception is unconditioned. Yeah. It's conditioned. So it feels good when the meta is strong. Why does it feel good? It's another really important question to ask. Why does it feel good when the metta is strong? I'll give you a hint. What does the sense of self feel like when the metta is strong? What does the sense of self feel like when the metta is strong? Check for yourself. But when the metta is strong, the sense of self will usually not be strong. Yeah, there'll be a lot less sense of identity and identification. So there'll be more ease in the being, more relaxation in the being, more well-being. So really, I'm just touching on it this evening, really beginning to explore this and questioning this. You know, what are the conditions that are at play? What are the conditions that are at play? So as we practice more in this way, you know, we cultivate these qualities, we cultivate um, these ways of looking. Metta, joy, compassion, equanimity. It may be difficult to believe that tonight, but they become so much more accessible to us. They arise a lot more spontaneously. And this is of benefit to ourselves yeah, a lot less struggle with our experience. And it's also of benefit to others. We have a lot less struggle with them, obviously. So there's a lot of benefit that comes from that. And the more welcoming, the more open, receptive we can be to our experience through the cultivation, through the slow cultivation of these practices, the more calm and clear seeing and understanding there will be, the more insight there will be. And the more insight there will be, the more these qualities will arise. So it's a cycle that feeds itself. A cycle that feeds itself.
And so one thing that can be useful, I'll use um, this pile of glasses again that someone told me about recently. We can really use it as an image that can help. So if I'm experiencing difficulty, I can ask myself, what are the glasses that I'm looking through right now? Yeah? What am I looking through? And it can be a habit. It can be a mind state. It can be a physical state of tiredness or hunger or discomfort that's affecting what I'm seeing. And what happens if I put that down and I pick something else up? How can I look at this differently? How can I look at this differently? Or specifically, we can ask over the days, how would this look if I looked through the lens of metta? How would this look if I looked through the lens of compassion? How would this look if I looked through the lens of equanimity? We can bring that into the practice playing with that, looking at that. today um, asked a question about something that I I said um, I think this morning about that sense of self and other that we live with which I've touched on tonight as well that separation and that possibility for that separation to change and to dissolve difficult to grasp what that would actually mean. And so the encouragement isn't to, to try and figure it out in the mind, but just to ask these questions. You know, what would it be like? Or what does that mean? Or what if I looked at this situation from the perspective of the other person and not mine? How would that shift? How would that change? I can share from my own experience um, over the years of the resource that meta practice as a way of looking can be in difficult situations. And sometimes I'm being in a very difficult dynamic with someone in my life. And then working with that person in the meta practice, which I'm not telling you to do yet. <laughs> you know, give, give, give yourself a lot of time. And then seeing how that shifts the dynamic. Not necessarily in the actual interaction. You know, there can still be an incredible, dif- incredibly difficult dynamic and difference of opinion or views. But the shift internally can be huge of the opening and the release of resources and energy that have been used up without any awareness on shutting down and pushing someone away. So it's counter, it can be counterintuitive, you know, it can feel that I'm opening to another or sending metta to someone that is difficult or I disagree with. That that can be a loss of some of some kind. But it's counter actually counterintuitive. It's actually a huge gain when it can happen. Causes and conditions. When conditions are right for that to happen, it becomes a resource of energy for us. So it's not magic, unfortunately. <laughs> It's not magic and it takes time. It doesn't kind of... Sometimes it can be very immediate, but a lot of the time it takes time, it takes commitment. It takes um, coming back. You know, all these things that we're doing here over the days, coming back to the practice, coming back to the practice. 
but it's also very doable for us, you know, really doable for us. We can really do it. I feel like I'm not convincing you. (laughs) It's not magic, but it's possible. It's really possible. And it can also have um, some very powerful results, not just in the long term. When we really cultivate it, really cultivate it. And I'd just like to end with uh, one more story I can't resist. About fear. When I um, spoke about metta this morning, I spoke about it being offered as an antidote to fear. And, and I think that's also something that, that people are probably wondering about. You know, how does that actually work? An antidote to, to fear. And so this is a, um, a story from a friend of mine. Uh, again, happened just, uh, I think, about two, two, three, four weeks ago, pretty recently. Um, one of my Israeli friends who's um, part of our engaged Dharma group in Israel, uh, working with, uh, with a few Palestinian villages, supporting them in, in many different ways. And one of the ways um, has been joining demonstrations in a village that we've been working in since 2009. And um, the villagers are demonstrating, have been demonstrating for about 18 months now um, by holding their Friday midday prayer, which is the most important prayer of the week. They're holding it by the main road. And why are they doing that? So... Um, the uh, Israeli authorities have built a safety barrier on both sides of the road, you know, kind of metal barrier to stop cars um, driving off the road and drivers being injured. So it's just a, I think you call it a safety barrier, I have no idea what you're calling here, but it's just a metal thing on the side of the road, you have them everywhere. So why is that a problem? So when they built the safety barrier, they uh, it blocks all the agricultural roads that go into the olive groves on both sides. So the farmers um, can't access their lands except on foot. So they can't go with a car, they can't go with a tractor, they can't go with a donkey, they can't go with a horse. They can only walk because you have to go over this. So they've been demonstrating to um, have these roads opened. That's the reason for the demonstration. And so this particular uh, week of the demonstrations, um, there had been a lot of issues over the previous weeks with the army stopping the Israelis that were coming to join the demonstrations and joining them. And uh, that week they had found a secret way, there is magic in the world, to get there, uh, a way that the army didn't know. So they were at the demonstration and there was an army um, officer there and he was speaking to, to my friend. Um, and in that conversation, my friend insisted, the, the um, IDF officer was speaking in Hebrew, asking him questions about the demonstration. He kept insisting, translating to Arabic, so actually the farmers, whose demonstration it was, could, could respond. And what ended up happening was a, actually a conversation where the Israeli soldiers listened to why the demonstration was happening. And they had no clue, didn't know. So that was part one. At the end of the demonstration, the villagers started heading back to the village and the Israelis that were there um, stopped to speak to the, to the soldiers just to, to thank them because they had been quite... Uh, polite and um, interested. And as they were doing that, the, the same officer that had been engaged in conversation told my friend, um, okay, now I'm going to arrest you uh, because um, you're not meant to be here. As this dialogue was going on and um, the, the Palestinian friends, the farmers who had been demonstrating and saw something was going on, they came back down. Came back down. They realized that uh, my friend Aviv was going to be arrested and they actually approached the 
the soldiers and said, um, you're not going to arrest him, he's our guest. This is our land, he's our guest, you will not harm him. And they physically pushed him to be behind them. So why am I telling this story? If my friend Aviv got arrested, he would be released within a few hours. Yeah, he's an Israeli citizen. If my Palestinian friends had been arrested, complete unknown. The risk to them was much higher than the risk to him. Their reason to fear is much bigger. And yet friendship, meta, stronger than fear. Stronger than fear. And that day it worked. And they all walked back to the village together with that real sense of the power, the strength of friendship that can allow us to overcome fear. And it's something that we all know yeah, within us. Maybe not in this kind of an extreme example, but we all know moments when we've put aside our own interest, we've put aside our own fear out of love, out of friendship, out of care for another. So it's in us. So we're coming back to that sense of this is in us. And what we're doing here is giving it the best conditions to grow. To grow. And to become stronger. Let's just um, have a few quiet moments to bring this to a close together. together nourish the seeds of metta compassion, joy and equanimity in our own being and in the world around us and may our practice together be for the benefit and the welfare of all beings everywhere including ourselves So thank you for your listening and your presence and your patience. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.